All right. Good morning. Looking around. I, oh, there's Wayne. Okay. I thought I was going to be the only member of our teaching team here, which gave me incredible um, flexibility. But, <laughs> but now I'm going to have to be good. <laughs> well, good morning. And for those of you who have been around a while, um, we have been on a fast-paced lightning speed romp through the book of Mark. We began last July, and um, <laughs> we did take a few breaks along the way for Lent, for Easter, for Advent, um, but now we're in the home stretch as Jesus approaches the cross. And today we're in chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And most of you know, I think all of you know, that our teaching team consists of a number of folks with varied backgrounds. And along with that comes varied experiences, various perspectives. And while you might think that is confusing, um, because sometimes our perspectives don't exactly align perfectly, uh, we tend to think of this as a bonus. Uh, first of all, maybe you prefer a teacher who is more extemporaneous and wanders around the stage. Um, then you're going to be really happy when Wayne and Brian are here. Uh, <laughs> or maybe that makes you nervous. And in that case, you're going to like Catherine or me or maybe April Lynn. Um, but more importantly, at Liminal, we don't see our role as one where we give you answers. Rather, we hope to present things in a way that make you think and make you study a bit deeper and spark your, creative, or your curiosity. Now, I mentioned we have different backgrounds. Catherine and Wayne's background includes a lot more theology um, and study. Brian's includes a deep tradition in theater, which likely explains why he wanders so much. Um, I'm a writer and musician, which are kind of sedentary things. So I don't, you're not going to see me roaming around. Um, and in fact, without this podium, you would see my knees shaking. And uh, I will tend to lean more towards the practicality than theology, which is interesting for this particular week. Um, because we're doing uh, Mark 13, uh, verses 1 through, well, it was supposed to be, verses 1 through 18. But Catherine, who is our fearless leader of this ragtag teaching folk, um, took pity on me and on you, um, because Mark 13 has some really pesky theological and doctrinal passages in it. And quite frankly, um, it's above my pay grade. So, if you are familiar with Mark 13, you'll note that we stop just short of the discussions of the abomination that causes desolation and what some folks believe that heralds in the tribulation. So, if you came hoping this morning that I would let you know the exact date and time of Jesus' return, um, I'm saving that for Catherine, <laughs> who is not here. So, next week... <laughs> She will be surprised to know that you come expecting a date and a time. <laughs> well, um, this particular discourse that I'll be speaking on comes in two chunks. Uh, the first is a shorter chunk, which I will read in a second. And in this, Jesus is addressing a larger group of his followers. And then in the longer chunk, Jesus begins to explain things on a deeper level to four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And it seems that Jesus does this a lot. He'll have a general discourse, and then he'll pull them aside, and then it's usually these guys. I, 
maybe it's because they want to know on a deeper level. I'm not going to say anything about how quick they are to pick it up because honestly, I'm not very quick either. Like Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, we generally need that supplemental discussion. So it's really nice that the Bible lets us in on it. So Mark 13, starting with verse 1. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. So, Jesus is leaving the temple. And this is significant. It's not just like what you're going to do when the service is over, where you say goodbye to your friends and you walk out and you come back the following week, or so we hope. Um, no, this is actually Jesus' final and definitive break from the temple. Um, he has three times predicted his death at the hand of the Jewish and Gentile leaders. He's challenged and countermanded the authority of the Sanhedrin and of each of its parts, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees together who epitomize the authority of the temple. He has judged the temple as a den of robbers, and he topped it off by cursing the fig tree, which symbolized the temple. In fact, these very acts of Jesus significantly motivated Jesus' adversaries to seek his death. Now, I want to do a rabbit trail here. <laughs> it's a planned rabbit trail, Enneagram 5. <laughs> it is all too easy for us to demonize the Jewish religious leaders for killing Jesus, isn't it? I mean, I cut my teeth on that fact. And in doing so, I think we miss a really valuable lesson and miss their hearts entirely. And here's the lesson. The Jewish leaders were passionate about preserving the purity of the Jewish faith. This was actually a mandate from God. There are a gazillion verses in the Old Testament that would point towards excluding various ways and means anyone who would um, pervert the purity of Judaism, whose purpose is to what? To love the Lord their God with all their hearts, their souls, their minds, and to love their neighbors, their selves. That is the Shema plus a verse from Leviticus that holds almost as much sway. It's so important to them that they recite it every day, every morning, every night. And the rabbis over centuries carefully mapped out these commands and what they would look like in the Talmud and the Mishnah, which comprise the oral traditions or interpretations of how to live the Torah. Their desire basically was to put details on the Torah so that people would know what it looked like. You know, it's sort of like a mission's vision's value thing. You know, how do we live to live out the Torah? And there's nothing wrong with that, nothing at all. But eventually the law became sort of supreme, and in many ways it eclipsed the very worship of God that it was trying to protect. With this in mind, Jesus seemed to take great pleasure in breaking those rules. He did things on the Sabbath he wasn't supposed to do. He reinterpreted the law. And the people he hung out with were the very ones that made good Jewish boys and girls unclean. Jew Jesus was, in truth, a troublemaker and a breaker of the status quo. And if that were not enough, the Sanhedrin had an additional responsibility to keep the Pax Romana, peace with Rome. That peace was balanced on the head of a pin during a very, very troubled time. 
fresh on everyone's minds was the reality that only 75 years prior to Jesus' birth, there was a Jewish revolt against Rome. Neither the Jews nor the Romans had forgotten this, the first Jewish revolt. Now, we've heard, we've all heard it, the Texan cry, remember the Alamo, right? You've all heard that? Tell me you've all heard that. Yes, okay, good. Um, well, that was where 189 Texans died at the hands of the Mexican army. In the first Jewish revolt, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million non-combatant Jews died and over 100,000 were slaves. Now think of that. The Jewish, had, Jewish people had no interest in a repeat, and they had serious motivation to keep their heads down and stay off of the Roman radar. And Jesus didn't cooperate. Not only did he draw large crowds, but he did things in the large crowds in front of everyone, Jews and Romans alike, like healing leprosy, blindness, insanity, demon possession, and even raising people from the dead. Not surprisingly, word spread, and with it, words that directly contradicted what the Sanhedrin had been teaching for centuries. So the Sanhedrin was understandably nervous, and as they interpreted their law, there was one easy answer. Jesus had to go. Not just for their own benefit, but even more so, I think, for the benefit of their flock, because they didn't want them to be led astray and perhaps pay for their straying with their very lives. In 2020 hindsight, we look back and we see that they were incorrect with devastating con um, consequences. But honestly, I can't bring myself to demonize them. Their motives, for at least a large part, were pure. They did the best they could for their flock with the understanding that they have. And being one of your pastors, I understand at least a part of the pressure they faced. So I give them a bit of a pass, and I'm hesitant to cast stones in their directions because, quite honestly, I can't tell you I would have done any differently because I am a lover of the status quo as well. Okay, end of the rabbit trail. And back to our story. You like that? <laughs> I thought if I'm going to have a rabbit trail, I might as well be honest about it. So, Jesus leaves the temple physically and metaphorically. And as he and his disciples pass through the gates, one disciple, who apparently shall remain nameless for his own protection, says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. This guy missed the import of what Jesus' departure from the temple symbolized. And as was their habit, he focused on what was in front of his nose, much like we do. What was in front of his stones? Stones. Really, really big stones. In fact, the stones that were used to construct the temple, which was still unfinished after 50 years of construction, were gigantic. The circumference of the temple court spanned nearly a mile, large enough to accommodate 12 football fields. And the blocks of stones used in construction were, according to first century historian Josephus, approximately 40 cubits or maybe 60 feet in height. And those were just for the retaining wall. I mean, think about that. Josephus reports that the thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms touching one another to envelop it. Wayne and Brian and Ben, would you stand up a minute, touch hands, do that? Let's just get a visual. Okay, those are pretty big, right? 
<laughs> Thanks, guys. That's as close to improv as anyone is ever going to see from me right here. <laughs> Well, Jesus brushed these massive stones aside, saying, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be torn down. Consider the culture and the available weaponry of the time. Swords, javelins, spears, maybe an occasional catapult. That must have seemed inconceivable to the disciples. Here, as is his habit, Jesus is speaking in layers. He prophesied the physical destruction of the temple, which in fact was destroyed 40 years later when Caesar ordered the whole city to be razed. Josephus, who lamented over the destruction at the time, said that even the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Can you imagine? But there's an even deeper level to Jesus' words. He also speaks metaphorically of this, his final judgment on the temple, inferring that these stones have actually become stumbling blocks. In other words, the temple itself had become something to be worshipped, a distraction from the worship of the true God. The law and the temple that, it re- that represented it had somehow gained supremacy over God in terms of priority and practice. Now, this is indeed a cautionary tale because we have a propensity to miss the same mark. We say we worship God, but our lives might tell a different story. We We become fiercely loyal to a denomination, a church building, a particular version of the Bible, a pastor, a style of worship, or any other number of things or people whose role it is to point to God. Well, that could be a whole other sermon, but we've had our passage to look at, and I've already had my my rabbit trail for the morning. So after gently crushing the observation of one of his disciples as to the seeming indestructibility of the huge temple stones, Jesus pulls aside four of his disciples who have questions. Now, I love that. They had questions. I have questions. What a great posture it is to approach Jesus with questions. The disciples are generally on the right path when they ask him questions. It's when they come to him with answers that they get in trouble. We should take a lesson from that, I think. Certainly, generally, one certainty generally only works if what we are certain about is the whole and absolute truth. But generally, our understandings are clouded and based on shaky interpretations and personal bias. And that's another sermon for another Sunday. But in the meantime, the mini takeaway is this. Hold things loosely. Be curious. Wonder. And always be open to learn and see new facets of who God is and what God is about. Well, let's dive into the second longer um, chunk of our passage. While Jesus is sitting at the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that all things are, when all things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to speak to them, saying, 
Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will raise up against parents and have them put to death. I so wanted the next line to be, but be of good cheer. <laughs> but spoiler alert for next week, it is not. The disciples have just heard Jesus say that the temple will be destroyed. In other words, if Jesus' words are right, their world as they know it is about to come crashing down and everything they know will be decimated. So now they have two questions. When will it happen? And can you give us a sign so we know when it will happen? Probably with an idea of hightailing it out of there. The scripture says Jesus began to speak to them. And this is a literary device that's very common in Semitic literature. It's a preface indicating the importance of the following words. And what follows is not very encur encouraging to the concerned disciples. Basically, Jesus says it's going to get bad. Very, very bad. Deception, war, earthquakes, famines, and that's just the prelude. Then there's betrayals, arrests, torture. I can't even imagine what the disciples must have been thinking because Jesus has already predicted his own death and now this. And as you remember, the disciples are thinking that Jesus has come to overthrow Rome and to save them. Well, I promised you no more rabbit trails, but this one's relevant, so I don't think it's actually a rabbit trail. It's part of the sermon, so deal with it. Um, this particular passage and what Catherine will speak on next week is commonly seen as Jesus' foretelling of the end times. In the late eight, or 1960s, a man named Hal Lindsey made quite a name for himself writing a book called The Late Great Planet Earth that became immensely popular and spurred a whole lot of really cheesy movies, if I can say that. Anyway... In it, he compared the end-time prophecies in the Bible and then-current events to an attempt to predict future scenarios resulting in the rapture of believers before the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus to establish his thousand-year reign on earth, which Lindsay originally estimated would take place somewhere before 1980. It did not. Um, the book was best-selling in the 1970s, as you can imagine, because, you know, you've got 10 years to go, according to it. It sold some $35 million by 1999, which is kind of funny. Why would it sell after? But <laughs> anyway, it was also translated into more than 50 languages. And, you know, I don't want to be too hard on good old Hal, because he, he thought he was right. And thinking that he was right... I mean, he wanted to tell people about it. So it turns out he wasn't, but, you know, again, the motives are all right. 
well, back to my not rabbit tail. 1971. Ben was attending a fundamental evangelical college in Pasadena. He lived in a dorm with his roommate, Don French. They both had campus jobs and lived the typical life of young men who attended fundamental evangelical colleges. They'd all read the late great planet Earth, and this was, this was a hot topic of, of the time. On February 9th, 1971, Ben was awakened before dawn by a 6.6 earthquake with an epicenter in San Fernando, a mere 22 miles away from Pasadena. Ben looked over, and his roommate's bed was empty. <laughs> and he came to the conclusion that the rapture had happened, and he had been left behind. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Poor Ben. It was several minutes... I actually didn't tell him I was going to tell this, but okay. <laughs> we'll deal with that afterwards. Um, it was several minutes before Ben remembered two things. Thing one, Don French's job required him to report to the campus dining room pre-dawn to make donuts. Thing two, while Don is a lovely man now, at that point, if only one of them were going to be taken, <laughs> it would have been Ben and not Don. <laughs> But the point of the story is, the end time had become a real major focus of Christianity in the 1970s. And people would point to this passage as a recipe for figuring out the day on which the rapture would occur. Prophetic, prophetic folk proliferated, and it seemed that on almost any given day of any year, there was someone who said that was going to be the end. And even such things as, don't bother paying your mortgage, Jesus is coming soon. We actually had a friend who tried that. Now they're renting. <laughs> um, that's how pervasive it was. Remember when I said we tend to look at the wrong stuff a lot? Well, this is a prime example. And let me be real clear here. This passage is not meant to be a veiled answer to the ultimate cosmic mystery, where we are re to read between the lines and figure out the exact time and date of Jesus' return or who the Antichrist is. And again, I'm leaving that to Catherine. That's not what it's meant to be. What I see in this passage is far more practical. Jesus is saying things are going to get bad, really bad, and worse over time. He gives examples of things that shake us to the core. Betrayal, deception, war, earthquakes, famines, arrest, torture. But interspersed in these words of doom and gloom are a few things that I think actually are the point. And of course, like the disciples, we tend to miss them. So I put them in red. Let's look at them. Jesus began to speak to them, saying, Watch out that no one deceives you. Then he moves on to say, When you hear of these upsetting things, don't be alarmed. He goes on to say, be on your guard. Don't worry beforehand. Here we have admonitions in two parts. Each part is prefaced by watch out or be on your guard. These are actually the same Greek word, blepete. B-L-E-P-E-T-E, you may pronounce it as you wish. 
The first admonition concerns false messiahs and natural and political disasters. These things were all taking place in that time, in the mid-40s. And I'm not talking 1940s, I'm talking 40. In fact, a man named Theudas boasted of performing various signs, including his own ability to part the Jordan River. I don't know whether he did or not, but he said he could. And he garnered quite a following. But he was not alone. There were several other prophets and self-proclaimed messiahs that succeeded in deceiving the populace as well. Impostors have continued through the centuries and may claim to have come in the name of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in the final book of his Chronicles of Narnia, tells of an ape who cons a donkey into dressing up as a lion and proclaiming himself to be Aslan in order to manipulate the Narnianites. It's kind of a common thing. The moral of this story is be very careful who you follow. They may say they come in the name of God, but saying is not doing. These days, those who proclaim to be the Messiah tend to be written off as insane, don't they? However, the world is full of folk who say they are doing things at the direction of or in the ways of God. We do it ourselves. God impressed on me to tell you, and then I go on happily with my own opinion. Or, God led me to take this job. Did he? <laughs> Maybe. Playing the God card gives what we have to say an added measure of authority. So we use it liberally. We should be very careful of that, both in speaking and in following others. Playing the God card has become a part of our culture. Without getting too political here, I think we can all point to times in the not-too-distant past where one or the other or both political parties simultaneously has proclaimed that their way is the way of God, that God likes what they like, that God hates what they hate. Jesus' words are to watch out for these things. Many people will say th such things, but it's up to us to evaluate. Is this really what God is saying? Is this really what God is leading them to do? Is this actually something that God would lead them to do or say? And in far too many instances, it just isn't. Furthermore, we need to watch out when we're watching the news, chatting around the water cooler. I guess that's a pre-COVID thing, maybe. But you get the point. Is what we are hearing the truth? And even more importantly, is what we are speaking the truth? Watch out who we're following. Watch out even who we emulate. Are we basing our behavior and actions on culture? Or are we shooting just a little bit higher than that? In Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, if you were to think about your conversations over the last 24 hours, how many of them would have to be edited if it was according to this? Because I have, I have to tell you, it would have been very, very quiet around my part of the Downing House. But that's our benchmark. That's how we discern what's good and what's not. 
That's a Jesus-y way of being. It's our plumb line. Okay, Jesus goes on to say there will be natural disasters and weather anomalies. We have those. Earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, too much or too little rain. We've seen people interpret these natural disasters as God's judgment on a segment or other of our society. But these things happen to both the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm not standing up here as someone authorized to speak for God. I'll make that clear. But I get pretty angry when some pastor or politician ascribes a natural disaster as God's judgment to level on a geographic location because its people happen to sin. If that were God's most operandi, I think there would not be much left of us at all. The litany of disasters Jesus mentions could and do occur in every age. But there is a now and not yet aspect to what he says. In the first century, war with Rome was imminent. Earthquakes struck Phrygia Phrygia, in A.D. 61 and leveled Pompeii in A.D. 63. Under intense persecution, families and Christians informed on one another in an effort to save their own lives. We deal with weather anomalies and natural disasters all the time. In present years, we all remember Hurricane Katrina, where almost 1,300 people died. The 2010 Haiti earthquake, killing upwards of 310,000 people. The 2004 tsunami that killed 227,000 people. And wars and rumors of wars are constant on the news cycle. This world is getting very tired. We see it in all aspects of nature. We see it in the fabric of humanity. Jesus' cautions to be aware, to see what we're doing, where we are heading, these are meant to be a course correction for us. Those of us who are not facing what the first century church were facing. There's much we cannot control, but one thing we can, and that is ourselves, or we can try. In America, we're not living under the threat of severe persecution for our faith. Oh, we may get ridiculed and laughed at for showing up at church on Sundays, but, you know, we're not getting fed to the lions or burned at the stake or sawn in half, right? Nobody is holding a sword to my neck and demanding that I renounce Jesus. Nope. But here's a chilling truth. I do that on my own a thousand little ways every time I convince myself that my actions, my words, don't matter, that everybody's doing it. But it does matter. Jesus tells me to stand firm to the end. In fact, he said in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So here are a few questions that I need to ask myself during the course of the day. And maybe you need to as well. The first is, will I choose to walk with Jesus today, even when it's not convenient? Will I choose to deny myself today, to renounce the notion that I am the center of the universe and can do whatever I want without consequence? Will I choose to take up Jesus' cross today, Jesus' mission to love the Lord with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my strength, and to love my neighbor as I should be loving myself.
Will I actually follow the ways of Jesus? <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> Will I actually follow the ways of Jesus rather than just call myself a follower? These questions are best considered in a non-binary manner. They could easily be taken as guilt-producing, and that is not my intent. But more, can I lean into the ways of Jesus more today than I did yesterday? It's all about trajectory. There's grace in this. But imagine, what would it be like if my actions followed an unqualified yes to those questions? <laughs> I'm sorry. Pat's got a demon-possessed phone. <laughs> yes, it's not my gift, sorry. I'll leave that for Catherine next week. But imagine if my actions were to follow an unqualified yes to those questions, how much would my life be different? How many of the problems that I face would I not be facing? While this portion of scripture does speak of the end times, it also begs a question that may be more relevant. And that is, how shall we live? And how shall we live today? If I told you the world would end on May 16, 2023, which, by the way, and for the record, it will not, how would you live between now and then? Would you live any differently? It would be really easy to say, yeah, well, I sure wouldn't go to work tomorrow. But wait. Would we just fold up our tents and huddle and wait for the end? Maybe, but consider this. Maybe those people at work count on me. And maybe I would be the one person who could give them some peace and a little chunk of Jesus between now and then. And I'm not talking about, you know, shoving them against the wall and telling them the world's going to end and they're going to hell. That's not what I'm talking about. Give them a little piece of Jesus, a little bit of shalom. Maybe I'm the exact person God has put in their lives to do that for such a time as that. Would you live in fear or panic, trying in vain to hold on what is rapidly slipping through your fingers? Or would you live each day to its fullest, giving shalom and love to those around you, focusing on the beauty and joy that can be found in each day if we look for it? being profoundly grateful for the time that we have? Would you fix your, your focus on Jesus or let your understandably significant fears hold your attention? Would you notice and appreciate every moment? I think we spend too much time regretting the past and fearing the future. Rather, learn from the past and apply those lessons to the future, but live in the present. What if we lived that way now? This now is a gift given by God. This day, this very day, with its joys and sorrows, with its victories and challenges, this is a day that God has made. And he's made, in his goodness, allowed you to be a part of it. This very day is a day in which you can walk with God and feast on the intimacy of God's presence with you. Whether it is one day or a thousand, that you have left to you. Either way, let's receive today with joy. It is a gift. Be glad in it. Now, a final word on foundations. 
This passage speaks of things that we consider to be solid, which are indeed not solid at all. It invites us to reset our foundations. What do you put your trust in? What is your anchor? As Jesus recites this litany of disasters, he's with his disciples, and I can just imagine as he's speaking, their wandering eyes are glued on Jesus, clinging to their only hope. That same Jesus is our only hope. The Bible is full of passages that counsel against setting our anchors on anything other than God, not on strong armies or horses or chariots, not on imposing architectural mansions or houses of worship, not on other people, strong governments, or even on the ground beneath our feet. The message in these verses is that all these things will ultimately fail. But God does not fail. And here's a thought. It's in the stress of the storm that we realize the true strength of that anchor. This passage in Mark's gospel does not give us a blueprint for the ultimate timeline of the future. It does not promise a life that is, um, that a life of faith will exempt us from adversity. But what it does tell us is to watch and to keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith and to hold on to the hope and the assurance that God who promised is faithful. God alone is where our anchor must lie in the midst of whatever may face us. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. And as they come, I'll close this in prayer. Lord God, to whom shall we go? Where else would our hope be found? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Therefore, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. I put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my entire life. I will put my trust in you, build my life on you, my true and my unshakable foundation. Amen. <laughs>